Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samir Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week, there's going to be a little less economics than usual and a lot more politics. We're going to talk about the politics of Brexit. Sorry, so far it just hasn't been at all about the economics. But there's also a lot of politics going on in the European Union right now. There are these big EU elections that are going to take place at the end of May. To help us understand what's going on, we've brought in Duncan Robinson. Duncan is my colleague. He's the political correspondent at The Economist based in London. In a prior life, he was based in Brussels, so he, he understands the European side as well. Duncan, hello. Hello. Thanks very much for having me. So let's start off with Brexit. Tell listeners why Brexit hasn't happened yet. Brexit hasn't happened yet because British MPs haven't voted through the final deal yet. So back in November, Theresa May finished her negotiations with the EU27, reached a deal. She took it back to her MPs in London and they all said, no thanks. So 230 of them, was that was the her losing margin, which is the biggest defeat of any British government ever. Not great. Not great. So then she came back. She said, are you sure? And then she only lost by 159. Then she came back a third time and she only lost by 58. But we're in the situation where there's total deadlock. MPs can't agree on a a deal. And so that means we're still stuck in it. And we had to have this rather unedifying, slightly embarrassing moment where we had to ask the EU for an extension, which for a prime minister who's sold herself as the Brexit prime minister is a little bit embarrassing. And so the timing of all this, uh, the original deadline was supposed to be March 29th? Yes. And and a lot of these votes at the last minute were taking place in the, in the middle of March. But at that stage, they realized that these votes weren't going to pass. And yes. so then they had to take a number of next steps. So what did yes. they decide to do at that stage? So essentially, Theresa May had to go to Brussels, sit down with the rest of the European Council, which is the heads of government of the e- EU member states, and say, please, can I have some more time? And that has to be agreed unanimously. So that means Britain was effectively asking for permission from Greece, from Malta, from Cyprus. All these tiny states held the fate of Britain in their hands. And in the end, giving an extension is a relatively easy thing for the EU27 to do because it's the path of least resistance. If you don't have uh, an extension, then it will be bad news for Ireland. Their economy will take a hit. They obviously don't want to screw over Ireland because Ireland's staying in the EU. And so although it's awkward for Britain to still be in in, in the EU... It's more of a problem for the UK than it is for the rest of Europe. Were there any conditions to this deadline that the EU ended up giving? Not really. The main condition was implied, which was, please don't waste this time. Please don't just spend six months asking for things that we've already said we won't give you. Unfortunately, judging by the past few weeks, it seems like everyone's just gone back to square one. And everyone's saying, well, if we just remove X, Y, and Z from the deal, we'll vote for it. But those are things that the EU27 has demanded is a part of it. As we would get closer to this this new deadline of October 31st, 2019, I guess Halloween day, it's possible that all this stuff could happen again. <laughs> again. But in, in the meantime, there's some pretty important things that are happening throughout Europe uh, at the end of May. Well, at the end of May, you have the European elections, which is when we select 750 MEPs from across Europe. And Britain was not supposed to be taking part in these elections, but because we've had to delay Brexit, we now are. Can you explain why Theresa May wanted to avoid Britain taking part in in these elections for members of the European Parliament? 
There are two reasons why. The, the first one was because she said that she, Britain would leave the EU by March 29th. And so it's very embarrassing for these elections still to be going on. And the second and probably more important fact is the fact that the Conservatives are likely to be absolutely battered in these elections. The bulk of Conservative voters voted for Brexit. And so the notion that they're going to have to turn out again and support the party in a European election, which Theresa May promised wouldn't happen, but is now going ahead, it's a very, very bad look indeed for the party. And the extra problem that the Conservatives have is that these voters now have a new vehicle to go to. They can go to a new party called the Brexit Party, which is actually atop the polls at about 30%. And that vote has come almost entirely from Conservative voters. American listeners may not be entirely aware of what the Brexit party is. What's the story of this new party? So this new party was formed primarily to fight the European elections. It's run by a guy called Nigel Farage, who back in the day uh, was the leader of the UK Independence Party, which has been campaigning for Britain to leave the EU for decades. OK, so so the Brexit party is now the, the biggest party. How are the other British political parties positioning themselves here? Who else matters? So the Brexit party is at the top of the polls. Next, you have Labour, who have this quite convoluted fudge of a position on Brexit, because they've got an issue where about 70% of their voters supported staying in the European Union, but about 30% supported leave. And so they've got a tricky balance, because they know they can't form a government without keeping both of these sets of voters happy, but they've got a lot more of one than they do of the other. And so they're in this awkward balancing act where they want a Brexit, but a sort of nicer Labour Brexit. And then you've got a lot of smaller parties who are all very, very pro-EU, but aren't getting much in the way of support. You've got people like the Liberal Democrats, who are very centrist. You've got the Green Party, who do what they say on the tin. Uh, And then you've got a new party made up of disaffected Labour and Conservative MPs called Change UK, who are hoping to pick up a few MEPs as well. How unusual is it for one of these smaller parties, the non-traditional parties, to actually be leading the polls at this stage for the European elections? It does, on the face of it, sound weird that a party without any MPs that didn't exist a couple of months ago is atop the polls. But this happened last time, in 2014. This happened with the UK Independence Party, which was Nigel Farage's previous outfit, where they came first in those elections. They got more votes than Labour and Conservative Party did. And so that's the irony of these elections. They're seen, this is seen as this sort of huge moment, this potential smashing up of British politics, this huge realignment, when basically all it is is just sending Britain back to exactly where it was in 2014, where you had about 4 million people voted for UKIP. And if the polls stay where they are roughly, you'll have about 4 or 5 million people voted for the Brexit party. So in five years, where so much has happened, nothing fundamentally has changed. You still have this hardcore minority who care about leaving the EU more than anything else in their lives, and they vote accordingly. But beyond that, does it matter for for, for typical voters in the UK? I'm still not that convinced. Do we know anything about turnout, whether this election will matter more than, than previous ones? Turnout in these elections is normally very low. It's normally about 35 to 40%, so the majority of people don't vote. Now, Turnout's quite hard to sort of predict, but the indication from pollsters are that it's, it's going to be within that that realm again. But one thing that is interesting is that before you had a lot of motivated voters on the Brexit side who were very, very keen to turn off these elections to protest, the sort of euophilic fringe in, in British society didn't really bother. Now, 
you've got this very large contingent of people who really, really care about staying in the EU. So that's the big unknowns. Like, are these people going to turn out en masse? And because there's probably, you could put three or four million people into this category of like hardcore pro-EU people. And then that balances it out. You've got this sort of Eurosceptic fringe, and then you've got a Europhilic fringe, and that's going to change politics. And so... I think we've got about three or four million Trade Talks listeners. So we, I think we want to encourage all of them to, to get out and vote this time around. Yeah, that's not, that's not understate the numbers too much, Chad. Okay, do these elections matter? They matter only if people care about them. It's this really weird paradox where majority of people don't vote. They, you don't get any MPs. You can't form a government. All you get for coming first is some more members of parliament in Brussels and Strasbourg. That's it. That should be the prize. And then they get to have a say on European legislation. But people place a lot more meaning on these elections than they probably should. If we think back to 2014, it was UKIP coming top of that poll that really panicked David Cameron, the former British prime minister, into pushing for this referendum. You could argue that this whole mess starts from a quite hysterical overreaction to one election result in 2014. And it goes back to that point. Fundamentally, there's four or five million people in Britain who really, really care about this. And most people fundamentally don't. Can we talk a bit about how this process is working in the EU? Because presumably they were planning for Britain to leave and so there must have been some kind of response to that in terms of seats, yes. which is now being changed. Why does that matter? What's been going on? But basically, Britain has 73 MEPs in the European Parliament. If Britain was no longer a member of the EU, then they would have to not sit anymore. And so those seats were going to be redistributed among smaller members to make it slightly more equitable, because some, some countries don't have as many MEPs as they should. So the Dutch would have got a few more, the Danish would have got a few more, uh, and stuff like that. But pulling the 73 British members of the European Parliament out of Brussels will change how they operate, the decisions they're likely to make, given the role that historically the UK has has played in the European Union. True. Britain has always been a very important member of the EU, and it's always been one of the more liberal members, and it's always been the biggest liberal country. So this is a liberal bloc, effectively. The Nordics, Benelux, Ireland, the Baltics, and they they, they generally want quite a sort of hands-off approach to, to EU legislation. Then you get to the sort of Franco-German entry, which is a lot more sort of hands-on. And so that's fundamentally going to change things quite a bit, because now that alliance of small countries doesn't have a sort of big player in, in, in their corner anymore. But the thing about small countries in Europe, in Europe is that they're very, very good at building alliances and, and, and negotiating. So you're really seeing like the Dutch, especially, come to the fore on these types of topics and really start leading from the front. Is Brexit playing any role in in these European elections anywhere else in in Europe, or do basically they they just not care? My impression is that Brits would like to think that this is playing a huge role in in the French and German debates, but. It's really not. You don't see Angela Merkel being grilled on Brexit, except for maybe one question at the end of a two-hour press conference. For all that Macron would quite like to keep Le Pen's party in a, in a box, because they're, they're still sort of open to the idea of taking France out of the EU at some point, maybe in the future. Again, it just doesn't really play a role in, in, in it. There are bigger things that they care about, there are, and there are much bigger issues in Europe. How could the, the different flavours of British politicians that... that 
Brits end up electing as MEPs. How could that affect goings-on in Brussels? It could be very significant, mainly because the next president of the European Commission might be decided on who gets the most seats in the European Parliament. So effectively, the next boss of the European executive is it will partially be determined by, by the number of British MEPs. And it's quite a narrow race. So you've got the centre-right grouping called the European People's Party, which are the favourite. And there are only two British MEPs who are part of that grouping, so they don't play a role. But there's about 20 or so Labour MEPs who are part of the socialist group. And that could be a really significant amount. That could just push them over the over the edge and push push that group into coming first in that election, which would give them effectively first dibs on, on being the European Commission president. This is the job currently held by Jean-Claude Juncker. Would there be any implications of this feeding back into the Brexit negotiations? It could be, because at the moment, the the, the EU is very dominated by the EPP. Politicians from the centre-right effectively hold most of the top jobs across the board. Donald Tusk is a member of the EPP. He's the European Council president who's been helping lead negotiations. And so is Jean-Claude Juncker. So if you've got a guy from the uh, other side of the political fence, that, that could play some part. Can we go back to, to British politics and how this is all interacting with the Brexit process? It's been It's been quite tricky to talk too much about Brexit, essentially because hopefully you'll agree with me in saying that a lot of this debate isn't really about the economics. It's really a, a kind of political gridlock and, and knowing what's going to happen is all about the politics within the parties. So could you could you first of all explain a bit more about what is going on with the opposition party, so Labour Party. You said that that they were in this tricky position because they've got the 70-30 split of Remain Leave voters. Can you tell us a bit more about the dynamics there, where they're likely to go, whether there have been any changes? Because one of the things that happened just before this extension was that there were talks between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party. That That's that's quite unusual, right? They were, mm-hmm. they were trying to, to get some sort of common agreement. What What's happening there? Because Theresa May can't get her deal through Parliament with the votes of Conservative MPs, too many oppose it. She's basically trying to cut a deal with the opposition party and hoping to win over and do it with Labour votes, which is quite a rare thing in in British politics. We don't have a history or a system that lends itself to sort of consensus building. It's oppositional. You you get a majority and then you just you just ride roughshod over over anyone's objections. That's we're an elected dictatorship. That's just how Britain works. And so it's quite a surreal for Brits to see a prime minister negotiating with with their opposite number. This doesn't really happen very often. The issue that Labour have is that fundamentally they don't have many objections to the deal as it stands. What they would like is it to have a customs union slapped on slapped on top of it. And so their objection is predominantly political. The notion that Labour voters, the vast majority of whom don't want to leave the EU, would be happy with a Labour leader who marches through the same voting lobby as a Conservative Prime Minister is is a strange one. And so it will be very, very politically dangerous for Labour to actually agree a deal with the Conservatives. At the same time, because this is a very important topic, it's very dangerous for them to be seen to be sort of scuppering the process. So both sides are sort of locked into these negotiations that I think they both appreciate can't and won't go anywhere, but neither are willing to be the one that sort of explodes it. So if this doesn't end up going anywhere, do voters end up just leaving 
Labour and the Conservatives in heading to these other parties? That is the, the, the big question over in British politics for the next five years, whether you're going to have this political realignment. Because at the moment, you've just got two big tent parties for the people who don't necessarily get on. But the fact is, the British system is first past the post. And in that system, you end up with two big parties. And unless you back one of them, the other lot will get in. And so that is it's an incredibly powerful force that keeps these parties together, even if they are unhappy, uh, as, as lots of people are. Because the Tories have the exact same problem as Labour, but in reverse, where 17% of Conservative voters support leaving the EU, but 30% support remaining in it. And so that this, this, this tricky balance that both parties have to strike of just keeping enough people happy. If this negotiation breaks down between Labour and the Conservatives, what next? Anybody who says they know for certain what's going to happen next is lying. In short, there are lots of things that could happen, but they all seem quite unlikely. So the, the, the options that could happen are that like Theresa May could be removed. You could end up with a general election being called. You could end up with a uh, no confidence vote in the Conservative government passing. You could even envisage, in uh, if the stars align, a, a, a second vote. But all of those <laughs> options, while they're all possible, none of them seem especially likely. So you're in this very strange scenario where Britain could veer off in, in umpteen different directions. However, it's just so hard to tell which way it will actually go. Some Americans have taken the position, and I think this is the position of the Trump administration, that a no-deal Brexit would be great for the UK, and, and you should then go off and negotiate a free trade agreement with us here in, here in Washington. Knowing your sense of British politics, how likely is that to work? The Conservatives, or at least a wing of the Conservatives, have sold Brexit as this sort of moment for Britain to become a gallivanting free trade nation again. And free trade... The, the, and the idea of these free trade deals with the US and India and other ones, they're, they're, they're popular. But only when you're not talking about the specifics, because the moment you actually drill down to what a free trade deal would actually contain, they swiftly become very unpopular. And so what would be on the top of the US's list when it starts dealing with the, with, with the UK? It would probably be healthcare and agriculture. Now, those the NHS is something approaching a secular religion in the UK. And all it would take was that to just sort of pop up in negotiations, and you would have protests on the street, you would have millions of people signing petitions, and it would be politically dead in the water. And you will see the same thing in the agricultural sector. For decades, British farmers have been able to sort of hide behind their sort of more militant European peers. But if Britain's trying to sign free trade deals alone, the agriculture sector isn't especially important for us, but it's very important for others. So that's effectively going to be on the block. And so you're going to have Britain's rural communities who tend to vote Conservatives, who are the party that want these free trade, free trade deals. They will be up in arms about it. They'll be dumping manure in the middle of Whitehall. It's going to be a total mess. So while most Britons would like a piece of paper with free trade deal and then a picture of the next Prime Minister of Britain shaking hands with Donald Trump, they'd be, they'd be relatively happy with that. The moment you get into the substance, it becomes swiftly unpopular. In the US, trade has been a big part of the Trump administration's agenda. There's, there's lots of stuff going on. But if you look at what the Democrat candidates for president are talking about, trade really isn't front of center. Brexit, to me, looks quite different. I think the potential for, for a reshaping there is much higher. I also don't think that this is going to go away anytime soon. 
What's your take on this medium-term impact of essentially this massive conversation about trade, governance, on the shape of British politics? Brexit isn't going away. Brexit is going to be a decade-long at least process. It will take years. And the interesting thing is that it shoves all these topics that we sort of just outsourced, basically, to Brussels back into the domestic agenda. So topics like trade, complicated parts of the economy, essentially Brussels does the boring stuff. It does the the, the plumbing of the European economy. And now we're having to think about those issues for the first time in decades. And so... If we saw violent protests in response to the transatlantic trade and investment partnership, this EU-US deal, because of concerns that the US was going to somehow influence or change EU regulation, essentially what the the Brits are doing is saying, we want to have these debates domestically. And so perhaps you're going to get all sorts of, you know, protests in response to these domestic debates that used to be shoved off and dealt with in the EU regulatory processes? Yeah, parts of policy that were dealt with in this sort of technocratic, distant way are going to become really political again. And if you speak to Brexiteers, this was the point. They they think that that sort of British government was hollowed out by by outsourcing often quite important decisions to Brussels, where we had a say, but it was diluted. Now it's 100% down to us. And that means that the blame and the consequences is 100% down to us too. Given what we've observed over the last two years, is the British political system ready for these debates? No, in short. Well, the, the, the most depressing thing about this whole whole process has been the, the calibre of, of, of the debate. And I think you can argue this is a criticism of the EU because MPs haven't been used to dealing with these difficult technical policy issues. They don't have the skill set. And, and voters don't know to choose politicians that, that that have those skill sets. And that's something we're going to have to develop over the, the 10 or 15 years. It's a it's going to be a long process and it's going to be quite a painful one. And it's going to be a learning process at the end of it. That sounds so cuddly. Duncan, thank you so much. Thank you. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Duncan Robinson, the political correspondent at The Economist, for helping us make sense of British politics, European politics and Brexit. And these massively important, but maybe not so important, upcoming European elections. A huge thanks to Colin Warren, who takes care of our audio. If you're interested, we'll be posting more stuff on our website. That's www.tradetalkspodcast.com or send us an email at email at tradetalkspodcast.com. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Duncan, what's your two underscores? Two referendums better than one? That is certainly the case. Uh, the Economist is in favour of a, a second referendum, and, and I am too. Why not? Let's have a do-over. <laughs>